Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 15. We are going through the book of 1 Timothy, uh, verse by verse, there, line by line, and this is where we find ourselves uh, this morning. And this section of 1 Timothy has been thoroughly examined throughout the years, no doubt, and very much hotly debated. You'll see that as you skim it, uh, as I said, where you should go. And to be honest, it's a passage that could easily be avoided in order to get away from controversy that lies within it. Uh, but the problem with that, of avoiding it, is it is a passage in the Bible. <laughs> it is something that we should look at, that we should know, and that we should understand. Now, some have actually tried to remove this from the Bible, uh, but I don't think their arguments are valid. Uh, you can look those up on your own, maybe on your own time. I don't need to address them here. But well, what we see this morning as Paul begins to talk here in verse 8 about the roles of men and women within the church, and this will extend through chapter 3 as well, which we'll look at uh, together in the coming weeks. And what happens is Paul has been, remember he's talking to Timothy, and he's been telling Timothy that you need to deal with false teachers within the church that have come up within the church and there's now obviously false teaching within the church that Paul's addressed with talking about Christ as our uh, mediator. Uh, there's other things within this book that you can start to see, this, is, this must be what some of the false teaching is. And it seems as if some of the false teaching had to be with how the church conducts itself when it is gathered together, or how that would play out. And so this is what Paul starts to talk about, is... Yes, the general Christian life, yes, there are some things I'm sure that we can pull uh, from these passages for our lives as individuals, outside in the community, within the home. But specifically what Paul's dealing with and his focus is on the gathered assembly, what we are doing now. And we need to remember that when God sheds his grace on our life, he then shows us how then we conduct our life. He shows us how we will then live and how we, will, how we will function. And that's important for us as believers to know and to do because if all of this grace stuff is real, if Jesus is real, if he's really mediated for me and on my behalf and he gave his life for mine, then what my desire should be from there is to serve him faithfully from this day forward. I want to honor him with, with everything and whatever that might be. And even if it means... Uh, being shunned at times by culture or being shunned at times even by my own family. I want to honor him. I want to serve him. And this should be the cry of our hearts is to be faithful to him. Now when we read this section in a little bit, you will see why it's hotly debated uh, within our culture today. Uh, why fights happen and talking about gender or gender roles it wasn't too long ago you'd have to stand in the pulpit or teach a class and be worried uh, about women's rights and what uh, some women in the church might think. But today, that's actually expanded to, sadly, within our culture, we have to ask the question, what is a woman? We can't even get to women's rights until we can rightly define what is a woman or what is a, what is a man. And if you've had any of these conversations, I'm sure you've found rather quickly that it is a conversation of much ignorance there's not much to stand on. You can say some things, and they'll just look at you like, what are you talking about? And you're saying, I'm talking about truth. I'm not sure what you're talking about. And it's a tough conversation to have. 
uh, which makes this even more difficult. And that's why before I read in 1 Timothy 2, I want to read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so we can see the basic premise here. In Genesis 1, 27, tells us very clearly, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. I want us to remember that God created the genders and he created two of them. That is a scriptural fact. He created them equal, but he created them with different purposes, different responsibilities, different roles. Now, none of these purposes, responsibilities, and roles are better than the other. They're just simply the gender's responsibility and roles and purposes. And that's how we should see them. You see, but the problem is, a little later in Genesis, sin enters the world. And when sin entered the world, it created strife amongst the genders. And it created great difficulty in fulfilling the roles that we were created for. Thus, we find ourselves facing the problems that we face today in our society, yes. But even you as an individual, probably within your own home, uh, these problems come up as well. Or at work or in other facets of your life. And it's as a result of sin that all of this has gotten screwed up. So in thinking about that, let's look at our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8, we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 15, and then we'll do our best to dissect it and see what God has for us this morning. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control." Now, before we move on, don't get me wrong, I'd love to pray and just leave this morning. That would be the perfect service for me in this passage, is just to look at you guys and say, you're smart, figure it out, let's go. But I don't think I'd be doing my duty if I I did that. So looking at verse 8 first, we see Paul tells the men that the desire is that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, it's interesting that Paul says in every place. It doesn't seem to be a special spot for this to happen, but he says in all the places, this should take place. Now, Paul could be referencing here the fact that they probably met in homes and in different homes when they met together as a church, and that one of the main tasks that needs to be done is prayer, and that the men should be focusing on this in their time together, to spend time praying. And Paul gives a specific posture, doesn't he? He says, lifting holy hands. Now, some people might take this and run with this and say that what this means is that when you pray, you have to lift your hands up. I don't think that's what's being said here. I I think the focus is on lifting the holy hands. And specifically, what is Paul talking about with the the holy part, with with the holy living? I think what we're trying to see here is a man's attitude as he approaches worship. So, man, as you as you come into this place to worship, and part of that is to pray. We need to be realizing that God calls us to holy living. 
And so we should not be willing to go and to approach God's throne in a manner that is uh, taking it lightly or just thinking, okay, I'm just going to go to God and pray today. No, we need to remember who it is we go before and that we need to go to him with holiness. And so our sin needs to be dealt with. That should actually be a prerequisite before you come to church on Sunday morning. A lot of you might think, well, I come to church so that you'll talk to me and then God will deal with my sin and I'll deal with it then. Yeah, that's part of it. But you should be dealing with that before you come here. This morning you come to worship a holy, perfect God. And if you're a Christian this morning, who saved your soul. And you're just going to walk in here and bust in this place as if, here I am, let's go. No, we should take it very serious of how we approach God. And as we go to pray to God, now we know that because Christ is our mediator, like we talked about last week, we have the privilege to go to him in prayer. In fact, he wants us to come to him in prayer. But just because we have that privilege and because he wants us to doesn't mean that we should do it in a way that is dishonoring to him. And so Paul is telling the men here, you need to lift your your holy hands. And then he gets a little specific. He talks about some sinfulness that seems to be uh, common amongst men. He says, do it without anger or quarreling. And so as we come in this room to pray and to worship together, Paul is telling the men in here, deal with these. Deal with your anger and quarreling before you enter that room and start worshiping and praying together. If you're not doing this, then you're not honoring the Lord in your prayer. You see, I think it's fascinating that Paul mentions this and that after 2,000 years, we as men still haven't seemed to figure out how to deal with anger and quarreling, have we? There's some of you in this room right now. You're quarreling with somebody sitting in this room. I mean, as I say that, you picture their face. And as you picture their face, your face starts to get a little red. Not in embarrassment, but out of anger. You're mad at them. You're frustrated at them. And you kind of wish they'd leave. Or at least that they would bow before you and tell you that you're right. They've been wrong all this time. We have that in us, don't we? This struggle. And it's gotten to the point now, and I'm sure it's been like this a long time, but where anger amongst men actually seems to be expected. Fighting is something that's even praised and approved of. Something that's expected among men. And there's a really strong push in church life right now about masculinity and what masculinity is. And it's funny because there's always ebbs and flows of this and waves of this. And there's always a push of this that masculinity within the church doesn't mean that you're weak, which I would agree with, but it starts to push it a little farther so that you should actually be really tough and that you should be a fighter and that you should be willing to take a stand and do whatever it takes and be willing to stand your ground no matter what it takes. Now, I get what they are saying, I guess, to a point, but it's interesting that Jesus didn't take that approach as he went to the cross, did he? I mean, Peter tried. You remember that? Peter tried. He took the sword and cut the guy's ear off. And what did, what did, what did Jesus do? Dude, dude, way to be a man. I was hoping you'd step up. No, he didn't say that. He said, Peter, do you think I need you? Do you think I need you in this moment to be a man and to go fight for me? I don't need that. 
And instead, Jesus shows compassion to this man and puts his ear back in place and then goes on to be killed. Now, I want you to hear that in the right way. Men are to be masculine. You've been made that way. And women, you can't be masculine. You're not made that way. And I'll get to you in a minute, and I'll tell you that men, you can't be feminine. You're not made that way. God didn't create you that way. But in our masculinity, what Paul is saying is anger and quarreling doesn't need to be a part of it. As we lift our hands to pray to God in this gathering together, we need to check our sins before we do that. We need to deal with that. Because we can never be the man that God has called us to be if we're not willing to deal with those issues and those sins in our life and to approach him in worship how he's called us to approach him in worship. So we have to be careful and we have to make sure that within our church assembly we have brotherly love and brotherly affection for one another and that we come together to worship God together understanding that he alone is worthy of praise and worship and adoration. Well, after verse 8, Paul gets into verse 9 and 10, and he says, likewise. So now he's going to start talking to the women in the church, and he says, likewise. And so just like the men need to come to worship with the right attitude, with the right approach, now he's going to start to talk to the women. Likewise, women, you need to have the same attitude and approach as well. And so he talks specifically to some women to the women here and maybe some sins that they are dealing with and that women deal with. And so in verses 9 through 10, he goes straight to attire, doesn't he? He says likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The question I think that could be asked is, what is Paul getting at with the dress code? You know, why, why all of a sudden do we have him talking about a dress code with, with the ladies here? I think we can learn two things from this. One is in the church, one outside the church. One, Paul is speaking of the public gathering. And what his focus on here for the ladies is simply this. It's not your job to draw attention to yourself when you come to worship God because the attention is his, not yours. And he wants that to be known. Now, there was a cultural aspect to this because in Ephesus, you might remember, we talked about this, there was a temple, and it was uh, the temple of Artemis or of Diana. It went by both names. And what would happen in that worship is there were prophetesses in there. Uh, they were also uh, prostitutes as well. But they would adorn themselves with gold, and in their hair they would have gold. They would have braided hair, and it, it was said that they would put gold in between each braids, and they would do this as a way to make themselves attractive to their God, but also for sexual offerings to their gods. And it, it seems as if this had permeated the culture, that this became the active dress for women within Ephesus to some extent. And Paul is trying to remind this church and to remind the ladies in this church that it is not your job when you come to worship to dress to impress, but to come to worship. It's not about you when you come here. And this is a heart issue that Paul is trying to deal with. And in fact, it's a heart issue that I think we can agree we struggle with still today. Don't we? We even see this in the book of James. James brings this up 
and dealing with the church. You remember he tells the church, don't give the rich person the best place to sit. Right? Again, dealing with attire and how somebody looks. That's not what this is about. That's not what this gathering is about, is who has the most money? Will you sit up front? See, that's what happens at, at the basketball games you buy tickets for, or the concerts that you buy tickets for. It's the rich are in front, and then it slowly gets back to where we sit. Remember, by the bathrooms, really close, because that's what we can afford. That's not how the church should function. That's not how the church should work. And so Paul's dealing with this heart issue within these women. We can also see then how this should also flow, though, outside in the public sphere as well. Uh, There's something that Paul is teaching, I think, here about modesty and about purity as a believer. And he's mentioning it specifically to the women in the church. Now, I know that this can be a touchy area. I lived my young, my young adolescent life through the late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And during that time, what I was constantly hammered into my head, it seemed like all the time, was purity. Non-stop within the church. It was all about purity. And they tried to take the guys aside and scare us so much that we thought, if you even look at a girl like that, if you touch a girl, if you ever have sex, you'll probably blow up. I mean, that's like, it would made it so scary. And for the girls, it was taught, if you ever show any skin, you are just letting all men sin and you are horrible. And so there's a lot of hurt, I know, from that purity movement. But that doesn't mean that we can push it all aside. There still was a lot of truth in talking about modesty and purity. And that's not just as we gather together, but I think it would be in our life in general also. And so in verses 9 through 10, what Paul's really dealing with is the heart issue. Right? When you come to worship, remember, it's not about you. You don't want to draw attention to yourself with what you wear or what you look like and what everybody might perceive about you. No, it's about the one that we're coming to worship or that you are coming here to worship. Well, Paul continues on in verse 11 and 12. Let's read it. It says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, Paul says, Right away in verse 11, this is something that actually is very different for their culture because he says, let a woman learn. Now, letting a woman learn wasn't something that was really expected or even wanted during Paul's time or even the Old Testament time. In fact, the, the ladies of Israel weren't expected to learn at all. They did, they weren't, it wasn't really even desired. It wasn't something that would be, would be said. In fact, they should be outside. It's the men who teach and, and learn and are trained. But yet Paul's saying something different here. He's telling the women within the church, you need to learn. But this needs to be done in the right way, doesn't it? He says it needs to be done in a quiet and a submissive manner. And now as we take this in context with where we're going to be in chapter 3 as well, and and what we'll talk about a little more uh, today, but this means sitting under the word of God, taught by a man of God, with the authority that God has given him. Now, remember, this is talking about the public gathering. That's talking about what we're doing now. And that learning should be done quietly and submissively. Paul then goes on, though, to say probably what brings up 
the biggest problems here. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So what is Paul getting at when he says this? Well, you, first we want to look at that word teaching because there's got to be some things that Paul doesn't mean here. Paul cannot mean all teaching. Paul cannot mean here that women should never teach in the life of the church because we see in Titus uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, uh, Paul very clearly says this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so Paul and Titus is telling the women, teach. You're going to teach. So it obviously can't mean all teaching is bad. We also have in the New Testament, we have Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife, who would train people. They would sit down with people and share the gospel with people. And it was always done together. And so we have there Priscilla teaching in a way. We also have Timothy himself. Timothy's mother and Timothy's, Timothy's grandmother are talked about very often in scripture about how well they did in teaching Timothy the gospel. And so we can't look at this passage and say, well, what Paul's talking about here obviously is women should never teach. No, I think scripture actually teaches something different. That faithful Christian women, you will teach. Pastor Spencer said this when we were talking about this week. I don't know if you know it, but when we sing together here, like this morning we sing together, the purpose of singing is to teach each other. And so ladies, as you sang, probably better than most of us men, you're teaching. That's what you're doing. You're teaching. And then we also have women within the church, no doubt, who are skilled in teaching. And in fact, they should teach. They should stand and help with that. So what is Paul talking about then, about not teaching? Well, again, he's talking about the gathered, assembled church, the public gathering. And we see this with the next word that needs to be understood, and that's authority. Right? He, he, teaching here is combined with authority, to teach or to exercise authority over man. And again, there's no doubt that this is connected to where Paul is going into chapter 3, because in chapter 3, what Paul's going to lay down is these are the men who should be pastors and elders of the church. And he gives this huge list, this big list, which if you come tonight, you'll hear some of it, because he also talks about deacons in chapter 3. But this is who is called to teach and to have authority in the church. So what Paul's gathering here with talking about women and teaching, he's talking about preaching of the word of God where the pastor holds authority. And I must say this. Really, the main time, I don't, know, I don't want to say it's the only time, but the main time that I as pastor of this church have any authority is right now is preaching from the word of God, the truths of God, as we are gathered as the church. It's the only time. I, I, if I'm meeting with you in my office and you have some questions and stuff, the fact is, you could leave and not do those, whatever I said, and I, I can't say, well, by authority of God in this church, you must do that. That happens here. That happens right here. And so this is what I believe Paul is teaching here, is that women are not to be the pastors, the elders, and be doing the preaching as the church sits under the authority of the teaching. 
And now, here's where the debate would come in uh, more heavily, is, isn't this cultural? Wouldn't this be in the same lines as what is told to us in the New Testament to greet one another with a holy kiss? Now, that didn't happen to me this morning, and I thank you. I don't want that. Okay? But why would, we, why would we look at that in the New Testament to greet one another with a holy kiss and say, well, that was cultural. Today we don't, we don't do that. We don't greet each other in that way, and therefore it's not something that Paul was really commanding that a good Christian church will do, but yet, Pastor Tim, you're, you're telling me that this still stands. Because this is the great push, isn't it? Uh, we're one of the few denominations left, it seems, who... Uh, hold to only men fulfilling in the pulpit and being pastors. Well, the argument for why it still stands is found in verses 13 and 14. Because Paul doesn't cement this as a cultural norm, he cements this as a created norm. Paul appeals to the time before sin ever entered the world. Paul goes all the way back to the very beginning, and in verses 13 and 14, he said, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see, Paul grounds in authority this truth, and it's very important because he, in, in grounding it in creation, he lifts it above a cultural norm. Now, when we read Scripture, we must read it in light of when, where, and to whom it is written. It's important for us to do that. All things are very important for proper interpretation. But we also then have to realize how it applies to us today. We can't just look at the Bible and say, well, the Bible was written a long time ago, and there's no way that applies to us today. We're much smarter. We're much wiser now. And sadly, many people are going that route. But if we believe the Bible is really true, and that this is the word of God given to us, then we have to know, how does it speak to us today? What does it say for me right now at this very moment? And if you're not able to then answer that question, then really what point does the Bible have in our life? If we're just going to view it as some ancient document. But Paul here, grounding it in creation, shows us that it's relevant for us today and talking about it even before there was sin. In doing this, he establishes the perfect order of God in creation, of what we hope to be restored to one day, just like Eden, with no more sin. And this is why we started this morning reading Genesis chapter 1, Verse 27, which I think is also on the bulletin, if I remember correctly, on the front. God's plan all along was for male and female, equal in worth, skill, and purpose. And as I mentioned already, with different roles to play in this creation. And this is what has been attacked forever. Ever since sin, men simply do not want to lead in the way they are called to lead. You have men who... Go, they just don't want to lead at all, so they push it aside. You have other men who want to lead, and they abuse their leadership, don't they? And this is sin. We have women who do not want to come alongside any man. In fact, that would be a disgrace to hear something like that. Reading verses like I read in Titus of the older should teach the younger women, and as I read all those different things they were to teach, I'm sure what caught some of our ears was, and to be submissive to your husband. God, why does that got to be added there? That hurts us, and that's a struggle with us. Why? Because sin in our life. And this was a big problem as well 
in Ephesus at the time. <clears throat> Donald Guthrie had a, a quote in his book on, on this passage. He says, the point here is that mankind consisted of a pair, Adam and Eve. Eve was intended as a companion to Adam. The relationship is not to be considered as competitive, but as complementary. Now, I think that this, this quote jumped out at me because of the word competitive, of which I like to be in every aspect of my life, including my marriage at times. Now, I know we're talking about the church, but this does bleed into family life, doesn't it, husbands and wives? We like to keep tallies. I know exactly how many cups I washed yesterday. Exactly how many loads of laundry I folded. And I know exactly how many times Amanda has changed the oil in a car. Zero. I'm winning. Right? I mean, that's how we do it. But again, my mind goes to that stuff because I'm a sinner. God did not create man and woman so that they would be competitive, but that they would be complementary. That they would work together for the purposes that God had attended for them. So here what Paul says in verse 13 is Adam being created before Eve and Eve being created as a helpmate for Adam. We also have at, uh, Paul saying Eve was being deceived by the serpent and then leading Adam astray. Now not what Paul isn't saying here is Paul's not saying that Adam wasn't guilty. Adam had plenty of guilt. His sin was his sin. But what he's pointing out here is that Eve was the one that the serpent went to. That Eve was deceived and then she took that deception to Adam. And what a lot of the commentators said is that Adam wasn't fooled by the deception. He, he knew exactly what Eve was saying and he knew exactly what the serpent was doing. But in that moment, he wanted to please Eve more than he wanted to please God. And what did he do? He abdicated his authority. He let her lead. He wanted to make her happy above leading her well. And so he took of that fruit and ate of it. And now they both were guilty sinners. And because of that, we see the punishment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. And I'm sure you've heard this before. But I want you to really listen to the curse that results because of sin. Listen to it and tell me if it doesn't make complete sense why we are where we are today. It says, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Does that catch anyone yet? of the problems we have? And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, these roles that we have as men and women in our family, but also in the church, these roles, quite frankly, will always be a fight and a struggle. It's always something we're going to have to fight for. Yet, it doesn't negate the fact that God calls us to this within the church and within our life. It's a worthy fight. 
It's a worthy struggle. It's something that we must keep doing. Well, now we get to verse 15. The most hotly debated verse, probably in all of Timothy. Are you ready for this? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, before I get to this, and I, I know I've been up here a little while, it was interesting to me how many people I respect just punted on this verse in commentaries. I mean, just straight punted. It would say just like a few sentences, and they just moved right on and didn't even address what is going on here. But I don't think that's fair. I think that's, this is something that we need to look at and try to understand what could this possibly mean? Because as we read this, it looks like it comes across that, hey, ladies, if you want to go to heaven, just have a baby. Now, possibly, there's no way it can mean that. We know this. There's no way that justification comes through childbearing. Paul lays that out in Romans and in Galatians and in Ephesians. And nowhere in those passages do we have anything about, hey, you have to give birth. And that just even pushes aside the fact that there's women who can't give birth. Paul himself was a single man, and he says the single life is actually a good life. And so there's ladies who will live their life single, and it's a good life. Paul can't be meaning that they should go have fornication and have a baby so they can go to heaven. No, that's not what's happening here. Well, then, what is happening? Well, there's two options, uh, two common options that I've come across for interpreting this verse, and I want to give them both to you. One is that this is speaking of women in general, and in the sense, talking about the fact that the Messiah would be born of Mary, and this is how salvation would come, through childbearing. Uh, we see this uh, referenced in Genesis, uh, which I didn't read, but with the curse of the serpent, where it's promised that the seed of the woman will crush him. And so there are some who point to that being the interpretation of this passage. Uh, the question that I would have if that is the interpretation is, why did Paul say it so weird then? Uh, there's a lot better ways to say that to make it make much more sense. Why such confusion in the way he's talking about it? Uh, now again, that could be the option, uh, but there's also another option. This would be the one I would tend to fall into a little more. Uh, that option says that what Paul is pointing to here is he's pointing really to the one role that only women can do. I can't have a child. I don't care what transgender person tries. If they are a biological man, they're not going to have a baby. It just can't be done. I don't have the parts. Don't have the physical ability to do that. And what Paul is pointing to specifically to women here is one of the things in your role as a woman that only you can do and that God has gifted only to you as women, not me. And what Paul is saying here is to be a woman. Fulfill the role that God has given you. Again, it's not that childbearing saves them, but what Paul points out about childbearing here is that childbearing, know this, is a good work. That's what he's saying. Being a mother is a good work. It is a good role that God has blessed only women with. You see, motherhood is something no man can do. I can't do that. 
If, if my wife were to disappear, the fact is my four kids would not have a mom anymore. No matter how much I tried to be a mom, I couldn't be their mom. I could never say to them, I remember when I gave birth to you. No, I don't. I, was, I remember the one I was watching a Boston College basketball game, actually, when it was happening. That's how bad I am. <clears throat> one of the verses that come to my mind when thinking about what Paul is talking about here is Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 12. It's another verse that scares us often, but it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is a passage for you to dive in on your own at home this afternoon, maybe to understand what it means. But ladies, I think this is part of what Paul is getting at here with the childbearing of working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Being a faithful believer. Not letting the culture dictate what makes you a woman, which makes you have self-respect, what gives you worth. Don't let the culture tell you those things. Paul's saying, let God tell you those things. There's great worth in being a mother. There's great worth in being a wife. There's great worth in the fact that you are a woman and that you are feminine. And you can have these qualities of a woman married. You can have these qualities of a woman even being single. And you should honor God in your womanhood and these, and notice how what Paul talks about after that, after the childbearing part, if they continue what? In faith, in love, in holiness, in self-control. Again, these things that as Christians we are called to be. Things that we are called to fight for and to do. And sadly, in our culture, it pushes against even those things. It's pushing against faith. It's pushing against love, holiness, and self-control, and what those things mean. And these are things that we must fight for. And ladies, they're things that you must fight for. And men, it's stuff that we should fight for. Now, sadly, again, our culture will continue to push against masculinity. It'll continue to push against femininity. But we have to do our best to not do this. God made us this way. And he made us with a purpose. In our sin, we do not do this perfectly. As one who leads this church, I hate the fact that my sin gets in the way of having perfect authority. I just, I can't do it. And in any church you go to, the leadership there is not going to be perfect. In any family we run to, we're going to see that no matter how hard the husband and the wife try, because of their sin, it's just not going to be perfect. And it's going to be a struggle but it's something we have to stand for. C.S. Lewis has a quote. It's a little bit longer. But I want you to listen to it because I think it was, thought it was pretty good. He said, It is painful being a man to have to assert the privilege or the burden which Christianity lays upon my own sex. I am crushingly aware how inadequate most of us are in our actual and historical individualities to fill the place prepared for us. But... It is an old saying in the army that you salute the uniform, not the wearer. 
Only one wearing the masculine uniform can, provisionally until the parousia, represent the Lord to the church, for we are all corporately and individually feminine to him. We men may often make very bad priests. That is because we are insufficiently masculine. It's no cure to call in those who are not masculine at all. A given man may make a very bad husband. You cannot mend manners by trying to reverse the roles. He may make a bad male partner in a dance. The cure for that is that men should more diligently attend dancing classes, not that the ballroom should henceforward ignore distinctions of sex and treat all dancers as neuter. That would, of course, be eminently sensible, civilized, and enlightened, but once more, not near so much like a ball. I'm afraid that's what's happening too often in churches today. We look and we see, well, men are messing this up. Maybe we should put some women in there. No. Men in their sin are going to mess things up. But God has established the roles and the authority within the church. And as we'll see more in the coming weeks as we dive into chapter 3, God has called for men to lead the church. And he's called for the women to come alongside and to help in that. And that's a beautiful picture that God has given us. It's very telling that the Savior was born a male. It's very telling that God himself, who has no gender, calls for us to refer to him as Father. I don't know why God did it that way, why he chose the masculine Father for us to address him, but he has, and it points us to something. It points us to the importance of gender. In men, when we do not lead how we should within the church, the church fails. But ladies, when you do not do what you are called to do within the life of the church, the church fails. And sadly, because of our sin, so often we both fail. And we fail together. But that does not allow us to push aside the truth of what God has called us to. We must fulfill the roles that God has given us. I'm going to close with this. I debated with this. This is probably the nerdiest thing that I uh, know and am a part of. But I do like the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if any of you do. If you don't, you can leave. All right, go ahead. I'll see you later. You're out. You've heard everything you need to this morning. If you do, join with me in our nerdhood here, okay? But in the Lord of the Rings, there's two characters that are very important, Frodo and Sam. And in the, I only watched the movie. I don't read the books. I'm not that big of a nerd, okay? I, I read, I, movies are my forte. <clears throat> in the movie, Frodo is given a ring that he ends up, he has to destroy, and you find out as the movie goes on, nobody else can destroy it. He has to destroy it because it's been given to him. It's his responsibility. Nobody else can take that ring. Well, alongside of him is a friend of his named Sam. And at times, Sam would love to take that ring for Frodo because he sees the, the load and the weight of it all. He, he sees what his friend is going through, but he realizes as well, it's not my ring. It's not my task. And so the only thing he can do is help his friend get to where he needs to go. But in the end, his friend needs to be the one to throw the ring to its destruction. And at one point of the movie, it's, it's fascinating. He even says, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. And so Sam picks up Frodo at one point 
and carries him up the mountain to where he needs to go. But he's like, but I can't, I can't do this thing. I can't throw the ring in for you. That is, that's your task, that's your job, that is your responsibility. I think that's a beautiful picture of us as men and women in the church. Ladies, I, I know we read this verse and Listen, I was looking. Are there any guests here this morning? I'm like, this is a horrible day for guests. I hope they're not here. (laughs) But ladies, if you try to usurp your role and take the authority that's been given to men, I promise you this, it will not end in a healthy church. It won't do it. Men, if you continue to sit back and do nothing within church and force the women to get out there and do all the leading, And then you come to church and you think, why is this church so messed up? It's your fault. Because you have not taken your responsibility seriously. And this then can be painted into your family life. Why is my family life so messed up? Well, you need to look at yourself, men, first. Are you leading how you should? Do you lead spiritually? Do you care for them? And then we can look at our wives. And wives, are you being the helpmate that you've been called to be? Or are too often you stepping on your husband's neck saying, my go now? Even though it's not your responsibility and your role. That's what the culture teaches us to do. The culture's trying to blur the lines of our gender so that it's confusing to even talk about what is a man and what is a woman. But we as the church know exactly what it is. God created them male and female. He created them both. He gave them purposes. He gave them roles. And he said, this is good. And one day, Christ will come back and he will restore it all back to perfection. To where we'll no longer have this struggle. We'll no longer have to deal with the pain of fighting amongst genders, fighting amongst our family, fighting in the church for authority because Christ will be there as the head and we'll all bow to him forever. But until that day, let us as a church be faithful to do what God has called us to do and to the order of which he's called us to do. Again, if he's saved us by his grace, if his grace is real, if what this book tells us Jesus, the extent that he went to for our salvation, then why would we not follow what he's called us to do? Why would we not try to be the people that he wants us to be? Hopefully here at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, we'll do our best to do that. Amongst the sin, amongst the quarreling, amongst the anger that happens, amongst the pettiness, we'll still remember the call that God has given us and faithfully go forward trying our best to honor him with everything we say and everything we do. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning and then we'll sing a song and have an opportunity to respond to the word of God. God, I thank you for your word. Although it can be difficult at times, God, we know that's because of our sin. It's because of our blindness. It's because of our own pride. God, too many people look at a passage like this and what we see is embarrassment. What we see is quarreling and strife but God I pray that we would see it how you've designed it and that it is beautiful and good God I pray for those in here this morning who struggle with this men and women alike 
Open our eyes to your truth. Help us to understand your word better each and every day. Help us to be the church family that you've called us to be. We do want to honor you. God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us for how often we put other things in your place, so often ourselves, where we think we have all the answers and that we know everything. God, forgive us of that. We want to honor you. We, we want to see the gospel permeate our church family each and every day, that we grasp it, that we understand it, that we live by it, that we, that we hold on to it, that it is our hope, our joy, our peace. And God, we, we want to let our community know that as well. We want to share about your love. And God, sadly, as we go out into our community, too often they'll see us as people of hate, people who are unkind because of the things that we say according to your word. God, help us to never be ashamed of the truth, knowing that you will open the eyes of people, that you will save people. By your word, you've promised that. And so God, help us to be the church that you've called us to be every single day. God, we love you. We thank you. Help us now as we close and worship to you. In Christ's name, amen.